0: Uh, Kevin, thank you very much. And Rachel and team, thank you for leading us in worship. Uh, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Uh, It's an honor to be with you this morning. Truly it is. Um, And thank you for joining us online if you're doing that as well. I hope that what we sang here this morning, that, you know, whatever you're bringing to the table this morning, you know, some of the lyrics there are really powerful uh, this morning. Thank you, Rachel and company for leading us that way. But that if you're in a grave... (laughs) That you can find that Christ has overcome that. Uh, if you're dealing with shame, that you can feel that He is overwhelming that uh, shame with His grace and His kindness and mercy. That's our hope uh, for you. Uh, well, this morning you're here, uh, or you're listening, and you're in the you're catching us in the third part of a series we're calling "Doing Good," and um, this series is really built on this premise that. Christians, and if you don't call yourself a Christian, that's okay. I'm honestly just really glad you're here or listening online at the time that you are. Uh, but Christians are called to do good as a very fabric of their salvation. Ephesians 2.10, which comes right after 2.8 and 9, it says that we've been saved to do good works. That's the, kind of the reality. And that ser- the series we're in is trying to kind of get underneath that. Now, to get started with that this morning, I want to take you back to Legos. How many of you have ever done Legos? All right, how many of you don't like to raise hands? And I, just, Some of you just, I think, said to me, like, have done in the past? Like, I'm still doing Legos these days. Some of you may know. I don't know if you know this one. This is evidently the mecca of Lego sets. This is, does anyone know what this is? Some of you are embarrassed to say it. This is a Millennium Falcon. That's right. How many pieces do you think are in the Millennium Falcon? 7,541. That one is important because you know how annoying it is to get to 7540 and not have number that one left. All right. 7,541. Not the scale because those little Lego figurines, they're blown up, but the Millennium Falcon um, is, is really a big deal. So this one, this by the way, a mere $850 on the Lego store. I'd recommend buying two of them for your favorite kid here this, this Christmas, all right? Now, now this is a big deal, but there's another one, there's another one that's really exciting. This one I just learned about. This is the Lion King's Castle. Isn't that special? This one is a mere, let me get this right, 4,514 pieces. It'll only set you back a cool 399, not quite 400, 399. Now, what's interesting about this picture is that there's not a kid in the picture behind it. Isn't that interesting? Here's some guy in his mid-30s loving Legos still, right? Now, that's interesting. Lego as a company actually went through near bankruptcy years ago, and they re- um strategized or i hate this word now pivoted oh how many bring that right brings back bad memories for me but they pivoted they changed and they said you know what kids who played with legos grow up to be adults who play with legos so if we create lego sets that are more complex we think adults will buy them and there may be more money even there which they did they rebranded refocused and we come out with things like this which gets results like this where adults who used to play with legos still play with legos because it's relaxing it's refreshing it's like a 3d puzzle we get to do it that way now Now here's the deal. Here's my experience with Legos. All right. Here's what I do when I do Legos. (laughs) This is about the extent of what I pull off. All right. Now I don't know what you do, but this is about where it is for me. Like I, I grew up in Barbados as a kid. I grew up and there's Legos around, but this is about what I could pull off. You know what I mean? It's pretty solid. Now depending on your age this might be a good accomplishment, right? But this is the the way it works, that when you don't have, and here's the problem with this, if you have the Millennium Falcon set and the Lion's King set, Lion King set, and you put them together in a big old box, but you take away the instructions, you know what I'm going to come up with? Right here. And I might give you a car or an airplane, but this is about the the extent of the strength that I can pull off with something like that. So here's the deal. Here's the principle behind this. Here's why I bring this up. Because we do the best we can with what we have, but sometimes we don't have the full picture of what could be. We do the best with what we have, but sometimes we don't have the full picture of what could be. So if I have all the pieces for the Millennium Falcon and the Lion King's castle, but I don't have the instructions, I don't see what could be then I'm not even going to imagine what could be, and I'm not going to know how to build what could be. Now, this is true not just for Legos, but you know this is true for life. If you have just the pieces of a marriage that are handed down to you from a generation before you, and you don't imagine or can't see what could be, you're going to build a little part of a marriage that you think you can build. If you don't know what could be, in your job or in your career, if no one has ever really built into you as a young person and you don't really understand or get a vision of what could be for your life and the strengths that God has given to you, you're gonna do the best you can. But if you don't ever get a picture of what could be, then there gonna be some things that are missing. This is true of faith. And this is what I wanna talk about this morning. My faith background, by the way, we're all handed versions of faith. My faith background, I come from a more conservative, um, uh, fundamentalist background to some degrees. That word means something to some and not much to others. Um, I went to Lancaster Bible College at the time when LBC was even more conservative then where we were not able to watch movies or go to movies, nor could we play with face cards. Okay, now that became a real problem and there was a a real problem within LBC because they got um, a computer lab. Um, This is back in the day, Well, this maybe in the 80s, I don't know, when computer labs became awesome. Here's the problem. How do you teach people how to use a computer when they're not used to using a computer? How do you teach them how to use a mouse in particular? The features of clicking and double-clicking and dragging. The answer is solitaire. <laughs> Thus the problem. And so LBC went through this like uh, this problem like, ah, uh, we have a computer lab, but now we have digital cards, and we're encouraging our students to, to play cards, but we're not allowed to... Play cards and what we do. And this is kind of just—it's funny, and I think they'd laugh at it now if we were telling a story. And we can laugh at it now, but this is part of the deal. And so I grew up with that. And so here's what that also means: that I grew up with a version of faith in which all the pieces are in the box. But the pieces that really came out to me were this: that the most important thing, the most important thing about my faith, is that inside of you and inside of me, that I would have a response to Jesus. That the immaterial part of faith was the, the, the most important thing to me. That at some point, I would respond to Jesus and you would. Because you're, if you don't know Jesus, my faith taught me, and still does, that if you don't know Jesus, we believe you're going to hell. We don't want you to go to hell. Therefore, the most important thing is for you to come to an internal or immaterial, almost philosophical, religious, spiritual belief in Christ. And if you do that, that will have been the greatest thing that we will have accomplished in your life. Now, we would then support and lift up people like uh, J. Vernon McGee, who's attributed, this quote is attributed to him. He said, don't polish the brass on a sinking ship. Don't polish the brass on a sinking ship. And so if the world is going to hell, don't waste your time dealing with poverty. Don't waste your time dealing with systems that are broken. Don't waste your time polishing the brass if the ship is sinking. If they're going to hell, make sure that they come to Jesus. And so what this, my version that I'm coming out of, allowed me to do or almost encouraged me to do is diminish and reduce a certain portion of my faith to the detriment of another. I love the way Tim Keller tells a story in the book that I'm using heavily here that I've mentioned before, Generous Justice. He talks about an evangelist that I can relate to. The guy named, his name is Raymond Fung. Raymond Fung, I'm going to read this part of the story. He was an evangelist in Hong Kong. He tells of how he was speaking to a textile worker about the Christian faith, and he urged him to come and visit a church. The man could not go to a service on Sunday without losing a day's wages, but he did so. And after the service, Fung and the man went to lunch. And the worker said, well, the sermon hit me. It had been about sin. What the preacher said was true of me. Laziness, a violent temper, and addiction to cheap entertainment. And Fung held his breath, trying to control his excitement. Had the gospel message gotten through, he was disappointed. Nothing was said about my boss, the man said to Fung. When the preacher had gone through the list of sins, he had said nothing about how he employs child laborers, how he doesn't give us the legally required holidays, how he puts on faulty labels, how he forces us to do overtime. And Fung knew that members of the management class were sitting in the congregation, but those sins were never mentioned. And then he says this, the textile worker agreed that he was a sinner, but he rejected the message of the church because he sensed its incompleteness. It's a powerful statement for me in my personal journey. In other words, he agreed that he was a sinner. And my version of Christianity that I grew up with, it was that's the most important thing. Like if you get that, that's it. That's it. That's it you get that you're a sinner, but then this person went on to reject that very same message because he sensed its incompleteness. And Keller goes on to write and quote some folks. It says, basically, if we are not presenting a fuller, a more complete picture of what Christianity could be, then all around the world, those who are poor, those who are oppressed, those who are most vulnerable, will reject the message because of its incompleteness. So why am I saying all that? This morning, I want to take you Man, we're going to go super fast this morning. Apologies. We're going to go quickly this morning on Jesus and on what Jesus models in doing good and how Jesus models a life of justice that isn't just a justice for the future, That isn't just a justice that says, someday later on, when you get to heaven, all things will be made right. Because what I am learning and had to learn is this: that Jesus knows that people need both justice both now and later. They need justice both now and later. Now, I didn't grow up necessarily with that, but that is a learning for me. And so what I want to do this morning, real quick, imagine a stone skipping across the pond. We're going to hit I am going to go quickly. We're going to hit a couple of key things that Jesus did to model his engagement with the most vulnerable. I want to make then one point off of that, and then I want to ask the question, what do the most religious people do in response to that? Then I want to ask, so what? All right, so let's get going here real quick. Here's a kind of a foundational verse to start things off. in Matthew 11:4 4 and 5, two verses. Jesus replied, and he said this about himself. He said, go back and report. This is when people are trying to figure out what was Jesus doing. What are we hearing and seeing? Some guys teaching and and communities are going crazy. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Do you notice in there that he doesn't actually say, go back and report to them. Here is the internal, immaterial spiritual or philosophical belief that people must embrace not that there aren't some of those but what does he say want you go back and report what you hear and what you see and then he talks about the blind receiving sight the lame walking those who have leprosy being cleansed those deaf who are hearing and the dead raised the good news is proclaimed specifically to the poor that's what I want you to report on. Now, can you actually imagine going back and saying to someone when you went away on vacation, they said, what happened? You come back and you're like, well, let me tell you what happened. Where I was, the blind received sight, the lame walk. There are people with leprosy. They're cleansed. The deaf are all of a sudden hearing, and the dead are raised. I mean, I think we'd all want to sign up and go on that vacation to find out where in the world is that happening. Because when you bring justice now, it gives you a preview of what justice later looks like. They're not separated. Let me keep skipping my stone. Oh, man. I'm going to stop apologizing. Can I do it one more time? It's going to be so quick. I'm not sure I'm going to get, the, get you everything I want this morning, but man, I'm going to give, give it my best shot. Okay. Um, Jesus went on this way, and we see that Jesus lived with, and he ate with, and he associated with a socially ostracized. Matthew nine thirteen, we see this, that he's living with, he's eating with, he's engaging with those who are tax collectors and sinners. Again, quickly, apologies. I said I was going to be done apologizing, did I? Jesus chose, in Luke 7, to raise the son of a poor widow. Let me ask you, if you're trying to get notoriety or trying to push forward a big agenda, why would you choose to go to a poor widow and raise their son? if what you're looking for is to get publication, to get known, and to build a platform. Jesus went and raised the son of a as if this is somehow important to his message and his gospel message. Jesus went on. He showed respect to an immoral woman who was an outcast. In Luke chapter 7, a powerful story. This is the alabaster jar of perfume for those who know it. Jesus was invited into a Pharisee's gathering. This woman came who everyone knew in the room was basically a prostitute. And Instead of rejecting her, he invited her and welcomed her. And then he made that statement, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus showed respect to this immoral woman who was an outcast. Jesus spoke to women in public and with them in public, resisting the sexism of the day. This is John 4. This is the woman at the well, Devin and preached about this the other Sunday. This is, there's incredible pressure here, by the way. When you, have to, when you engage with people who are... Socially ostracized, especially, you know, in whatever world you're in, there's a lot of pressure on that. Years ago, many of you know who I'm going to talk about here, a good friend of mine was arrested for serious um, criminal charges. Most of his friends were unable or unwilling to meet with him in public anymore following his arrest. In fact, they told me the very same thing. They said, we can't, basically, we can't afford to meet with him anymore during business hours. We can quietly or privately at night, but we can't because they were afraid of the reputation that they would get or the sense that they would send that they're affirming or okay with what happened. And you know this happens all the time. Once someone blows it too badly, they're set to the side. And when you are ostracized and vulnerable in a community and Jesus comes and meets with you, <laughs> it's crazy that this is what he did. Over and over and over again, Jesus did this. Jesus doesn't go along with the racism of his day either. We see this in Luke 10 and in Luke 4. This is the story of the Good Samaritan making this Samaritan who is a half-breed the hero of the story. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus claimed that God loved the Gentiles like the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian as much as the Jews. Jesus goes on to engage lepers who were sick and dying and outcast of society, giving them their first human contact in years. He's going to touch these communities. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus called on his disciples to give to the poor in strong and startling ways and praise the poor for their own generosity. Jesus ate with tax collectors who were rich but socially outcast and hated just the way that that was. In terms of the birth announcement, the shepherds who were considered an unreliable group were the first to witness Jesus' birth. In terms of his resurrection, women whose testimony wasn't allowed in court were the first to witness the resurrected Christ. When you take all of these together, they're quick, I know. When you take all of these together, you're left with an impression. And John Newton, who was an 18th century songwriter, he made this quote. He said, he put it this way. He said, Jesus showed a preference for the poor. Jesus showed a preference for the poor. They're not just that he went along with it, they need some help. He actually Showed a preference or a priority, where did he get that from? Luke chapter 14, Jesus is telling this story. He says, Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid or rewarded. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. John Newton appeals to Luke 14 and all the other passages I mentioned and more that I can't put up here. To say Jesus actually showed a preference for the poor, current physically material poor, or the most vulnerable in our communities. A version of Christianity maybe that hadn't been passed down to me to the degree that I think that maybe I wish it could have or would have. And that's okay. We all have different versions, but now I'm learning and seeing more of what could be. Which leads me to this question, and that is this. What might it be a typical religious response? If Jesus actually does this, and he engages this way, how might people who are most religious often respond to this? And what I often see, and I've seen throughout the generations, is that people respond to this with money or programs. Let me give more or have some people program more for it. Let's give more and program more. And then allow us to continue to worship the way that we're used to worshiping in the system in the way that we're used to worshiping. Listen to the voice of the prophet years ago, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, speaking to the nation of Israel. He says this in Isaiah 1, verse 11 through 16. I'll show 17 on the screen in a minute. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. In other words, (laughs) your worship, your styles. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? this trampling of my court. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations that I cannot bear. Your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts, and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. That's strong. What does the prophet then say is right? Stop doing wrong. Here's the very next verse. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. In other words, don't give me your worship when these things are being allowed to go in our communities and in your community, in our workplace, and mine. When these things are allowed to go without being addressed These are some of the strongest words that God has brought in the Old Testament. I hate them in terms of our worship, our practices. Isaiah goes on in chapter 58, puts it this way. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. you, You come and fast, but then you go back and you exploit your workers. You're not paying them or treating them well. In other words, how you handle those who are most vulnerable or poor is impacting significantly your worship. He goes on in verses six and seven, is this not the kind of fasting that I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from our own flesh and blood. Putting justice and doing right in the context of how we serve those around us who are most vulnerable. This is the voice of the prophet Isaiah, which echoes into the New Testament and echoes into Jesus. Here's how Jesus puts it when he's engaging the religious leaders in Mark 12, 38 to 40. He says, watch out for the teachers of the law. They devour widows' houses, and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men are, will be punished most severely. Jesus, is what, here's what we know, Jesus describes the Pharisees as full of greed and wickedness. They were very religious, but they neglect justice and the love of God, Luke 11, 38 to 42. When you put all of this together, Tim Keller summarizes it this way, and I can't say it any better. Jesus taught that a lack of concern for the poor is not a minor lapse, but reveals that something is seriously wrong with one spiritual compass, the heart. This is not a minor lapse. A typical religious response to this is that, okay, I'm going to add on a little bit of something to address this. How much money can I throw at the problem? What programming do we need? What Jesus is getting after is the condition of every Christ follower's heart. To place our faith in the context of what Jesus did in His incarnational life, to have a preference for relating to and caring for the poor. Now, here's what I here's what I admit is my experience. When Jesus teaches, He teaches um, what in ancient israel they called a whole cloth teaching meaning um, some of this and some of that he would bring social justice with personal morality and bring them together in the sermon on the mount he'll talk about um, sexual immorality and the need for personal morality to be strong and high but he'll also talk about the need to care for the poor And serve them. In our current world, both of these and in the West, they have been separated. They've been impacted significantly by our political views as well, whether we like it or not. They can become separate rather than brought together. And I don't know about you, but my experiences that I have in the past several years, I have never seen someone leave their political party because of their faith. I've never seen someone leave their political party because of their faith, but I have seen many people leave their church because of their political party. That pains me to say that. But I think I have seen, right or wrong, you can be the judge, that our political persuasions run deeper than our faith convictions at times, if we are free to be honest about that. And here's what I think, that our faith can be more informed by our political persuasions than by Jesus' own life and testimony. Conservatives stress personal morality and traditional sexual ethics and hard work, and fear that liberals who charge them with racism and social injustice are wrong. And liberals stress social justice and consider conservatives who emphasize moral virtues mer- moral virtues to be prudish and even harmful. Right. So on the one side, conservatives say, "Hey." This is about personal morality and choice. On the other side, it's progressives or liberals who say this is about systems and the way that we care for people, and your own strength of morality is keeping you distant from people that you should be caring for. And both sides think they're right, and the others are wrong. Both sides think they have righteousness on their side, and the others are unrighteous and wrong and so lost. And I want to encourage you this way. Fight this with all your being. Do not let your version of Christianity be influenced to this degree by your political persuasion. Fight this with all your being. If you want to find your view in the Bible of your politics, you can find it. But I want to tell you that there is no Democrat or Republican in the scriptures. It just never will be. There is a Jesus who engaged with the poor, who taught us about personal responsibility and also social justice. I have to admit to you, I feel a sense of um, anxiety uh, at times as I speak these days. There are certain words that have become politicized that I struggle to know how to say. Even when I use the word justice, I have had such a reaction to that over the past several years. I have never before been called a liberal until the past few years, by the way, which is very interesting to me. Uh, We have heard terminology around communism, socialism, fascism, neo-Marxism, progressivism, you name it. All with words that are Bible words. Bible words. Equity. Ah. Justice. Ah. Talking about race or racism. Ah. I, I get it that we are sensitive to it. But I want to come back to say, what does the scriptures teach us about what this means to follow God through the middle of our political angst? I want to encourage you to fight this with all your being. What is it that Jesus modeled for us? Both a desire for personal responsibility, morality, ethics, absolutely, and also a care systemically for the poor that was incredibly deep and rich, that brought justice now, I can put it this way, brought it now and later. He knows that people need it both now and later. Later makes no sense if you don't bring it now i don't believe you about later if you don't bring it now it doesn't work that way the two are not opposed they are correlated. they are friends they work together it brings a whole cloth teaching it isn't political okay that being said let me ask ask a couple questions let me put it this way if jesus showed a preference for the poor do i if jesus indeed showed a preference for the poor do i do i do that Or, is my relationship with Jesus primarily about my personal relationship to Him? My personal faith in Him? My immaterial spirit being? Being saved and relating to Jesus? I'm going to heaven. I'm close to Jesus. I don't know what's going on around me. I don't see the people's needs around me. But I know I'm saved and I am growing spiritually. Or, Can it be richer than that? Can I maintain that? I don't want to encourage you to get rid of that. I'm not asking you to get rid of that. I'm just asking you to add to it. You know, a long time ago in Dallas, one of my friends, I walked into a Sunday school class with him, and I asked him how he was doing because they just recently got married. And he said, you know what getting married is like? He said, you know what marriage is like? It's getting used to living with a million bucks. I'm like, that's a good way to put it. Absolutely. Because the more you're in it, the richer you feel. And it, but it takes a little while to adjust to the richness of it, doesn't it? And it's beautiful. It's rich. Same way with faith. Oh, it's rich. And so if I came, like I did, I came to faith in Christ primarily personal, an immaterial spiritual response to Christ. But it's so much richer than that. doesn't mean I get rid of that. Just richer than that. OK? All right, so here's another question. How do I make room right now? how do make room right now for justice for the most vulnerable? in my schedule right now. Who's sitting around, let me just be very specific, who's sitting around my table? Who am I having table fellowship with? That's the New Testament term. Who am I eating with, drinking coffee with? Who do I text and spend time with? I'm talking relationships with with people. Who am I spending my time with? Who are we having over? Um, This may require a schedule change. It may require a vision of people that you work with or work for to see who needs a ride home from work? Who needs a little bit of help with babysitting? Who might need a meal taken care of? Whose kids are struggling in school and why? I'm not asking you to redo all of your life, but I am asking you to increase your vision of how your faith in Christ is expressed. Because faith in Christ, I believe that Jesus, if he modeled the preference for the poor, then it means that he's bringing justice now and later. We have opportunities here to join the factory ministry team, we call it. Um, You can write that on your connection card in a minute when Dave comes up to talk about that. Factory ministry team, we can hook you up with monthly opportunities for connections with folks in our local community right here. We have the Together Initiative Network. Many of you know about that. This is ironic. Last week I shared an article from the Penny Saver about what the Together Initiative is doing. This week another article from the Penny Saver front page about what the Together Initiative is doing, meeting early learning goals. This is all about um, meeting third-grade reading goals in our community, getting them up to 90%. When you read this, by the way, here's why I bring this up. Because when when you read this stuff, if you read this stuff, this is a local penny saver. You may not get this. I don't want you to see just one more thing that the church is doing, although I hope you understand that. I want you to see this is the work of the kingdom of God. This is the work of the kingdom of God. This is how I see this. That our hope is that people... (laughs) those who are most vulnerable, whose children are not able to read, that they can feel the touch of justice now so that justice later makes sense and works. Just like Fung's textile worker friend, that he can go to church and hear, yes, I have personal responsibility for my sin, but the systems in which we are living, those are being addressed too, and they are caring for it all. A whole cloth teaching. Friends, I don't want you (laughs) to be content with a smaller version of what could be. I don't want you to be content with a smaller version of what could be. Can you imagine if you could find the instructions? (laughs) If you could get a picture, if you could play with your Lego box and build something like the Lion King's castle or something like my little thing. And I don't want your faith in Christ to be something so small when it could be something so rich of engaging caring relating personally personally to the poor my hope is that your vision of what jesus has done and what he might want to do with and through your schedule through time with your own family through your priorities through the moments of your days so through who you work with through who you're at school with who you see sitting alone over there that your vision of what it means to follow Christ into those spaces will be increased, deepened, that it will be like getting used to living with a million bucks. That's what I think it means to do good here. All right, next week I want to talk about why in the world we should do this. We'll go there next week. Father, thank you for the time this morning. I pray that you would help us as we listen to some of these things about what Jesus has done the ideas of justice and oppression and systemic things, and then personally care for the poor. I pray that you would help us to wrestle with what we're hearing, to agree or disagree, contend with it, resist it, argue with it, whatever we need to do. But I pray that you wouldn't let it go in us, that you'd help it to drive a deeper and richer expression of our faith, so that our relationship with Jesus isn't just a one-to-one but becomes a one to our community, a two, a three, a five, a hundred to more to our community. That we can be people who present a whole cloth to this space, who bring justice now and later and don't sacrifice one for the other. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to get a vision of what could be and get used to living with the richness of what you have called us to. In Jesus' name.